Hello and hi, welcome to another Slice of Sci-Fi. I'm Summer Brooks and we have a special interview coming up. Uh, actor Nick Tate, who played Captain Alan Carter on Space 1999. Uh, this interview was part of the series for the Kickstarter for the documentary uh, The Eagle Has Landed. The Kickstarter has ended uh, because of some other funding options that uh, Jeffrey Morris and Future Dude Entertainment are exploring, but this interview was too good not to use. So any mention of the Kickstarter, it's not there, but you can still go to the website for the documentary, which is eagledocumentary.com. And uh, you can follow the production updates over there. But now, sit back and uh, enjoy Tim Callender and myself talking with Space 1999 actor Nick Tate. Hi, and we are back with more Slice of Sci-Fi. I'm Summer Brooks. I'm Tim Callender. And our guests right now are Jeffrey Morris, founder of Future Dude Entertainment and uh, agent provocateur when it comes to the documentary, The The Eagle Has Landed, about Space 1999 and its impact on sci-fi geeks. And of course, the illustrious Nick Tate, who played... Uh, astronaut Aaron Carter. Alan on, Carter. Uh, Alan, Alan Carter. Carter. Sorry, Alan oh. Carter on the series itself, who is a, a, a feisty character, and uh, Tim's a big fan. <laughs> yeah. Nick, first of all, I just want to say it's an utter pleasure to be able to talk with you tonight, so right. thank you for your time. And and we were talking earlier, We I can't decide who's the best character on Space 1999, whether it's Alan Carter or the Eagles. <laughs> so, um, you know, so so where's, where, where do you land on that argument? Um, well, I always loved the Eagles, buddy. I was... Um... I, Alan Carter wouldn't be Alan Carter without the Eagles. He was the Eagle pilot. And um, other than that, I just would have been wandering around um, the moon base chatting up all the chicks, you know. No, <laughs> he had to have stuff to do. He liked chatting up the chicks too. Yes, was, that was that. Is, yes, yeah. very entertaining. Yes, it was very nice for Alan and for Nick Tate, the actor. But um, <laughs> I was saying in an earlier interview that I, my character wasn't going to be in the show um i was a, an actor that uh, uh a man in australia had suggested uh, he was lou grade's right hand man came over to take over from um, from the other people and uh, uh he was involved in the putting together of space 1999 and he suggested to them that uh they meet with this australian actor that had just arrived i'd done a couple of series for him and uh, he knew, or at least what he thought I was interesting. And um, the, uh, so when I got there, the casting director said to me, well, I, I don't know why you're here because the show's completely cast. I mean, <laughs> and, and I went, oh, okay, well, I was, he told me that I should meet Sylvia Anderson. No, well, I'm the one that does the casting. And, um, 
whilst you're very interesting, um, yeah, the, it's all cast. So, you know, it was like, I wasn't going to get past this guy. He didn't want me to meet Sylvia. And uh, I'd come down to Pinewood Studios specifically to meet her. They were already about two weeks into early rehearsals of the first episode of Space 1999. Mm -hmm. The only person that hadn't shown up yet was an Italian actor who was coming to play Alphonse Catani, uh, the, the chief astronaut. And uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, a hopeful actor that had come down to see what, what was cooking. And my, my friend had suggested that there were roles, but the casting director said, no, they're not. And I, I know what's available and there's nothing. Could have told me that there were guest roles coming up, but he didn't. So anyway, I was being virtually shown the door. I started to walk out of the corridor. Now there were people milling around everywhere in space suits and outfits, the Lycra suits that they were wearing and all Lycra Lycra. Uh, and I wouldn't have known Martin and Barbara anyway, except I'd seen Martin and both of them in Mission Impossible, but they look very different in this show. And um, I walked past a door and there was a woman sitting there that my father had told me about. My father had been in Thunderbirds with her. Sylvia Anderson played Lady Penelope. Mm -hmm. And there she was in full life color. And of course it said on the door, Sylvia Anderson on the door. <laughs> and I walked past and I, and as I, slowed he grabbed me by the elbow this casting director who was showing me the door and tried to pull me away and I went wait a minute wait a minute and so what are you doing what are you doing I said Sylvia and she went yes I said I'm I'm Nick Tate uh, uh, I, I've, I've come down to meet you um, and she said uh, oh yes I've got that on my diary here and and he's going I'm sorry Sylvia uh, the, I've told him there's nothing in the show you know don't worry about it um, and she said, no, 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 come in, Nick. And I, I looked at him and said, thank you, Michael. <laughs> he was furious. You know? And I went in and I sat with Sylvia and she was a doll. She was the life and blood of Space 1999 for all the first year. Well, I'm going to say the first year. We, we were on the show for nearly 18 months. Mm. November, December of, of 73, all of 74, and uh, January, February, March of 75. So, yeah, a goodly, a goodly period. And um, Jerry Anderson is, uh, is famous that he didn't like actors and that he just, it wasn't so much that. He was much more a technical kind of a guy. And um, he actually, I got on very well with him, to be perfectly honest with you, in the end, because he mm -hmm. actually asked me back between the two series, Space 1991, the first, and Space 1992, the second series, he did um, a pilot for a new television series called The Day After Tomorrow, uh, which was loosely called a series Into Infinity. It was going to explore such phenomenons as um, the Doppler theory and um, Einstein's theory of relativity and so on. Uh, and put it, the, the, the BBC were very interested in screening it. And he gave me the lead role, uh, which was wonderful of him. Uh, so I got on well with Jerry, but he said to me in this particular meeting when I met him, I don't like actors. And she said, oh, don't take any notice of him. And <laughs> they had this very feisty relationship, which as you know, historically turned out that they got divorced, sadly. But um, I, uh, that meeting was fortuitous because Sylvia liked me, said she wanted me to come in and meet Jerry. And then the Italian actor didn't show up. There are, uh, that's another story altogether why he didn't come. 
but then they had to recast it all of a sudden. And um, they still wanted it to be Italian. So they tried all the, the, the Italian actors that were living in England at the time. And they tried all the uh, English actors who looked Italian at the time, all dark. And I didn't look Italian. I was blonde haired. And, uh, and, and so I, I remember um, um, Jerry saying, but you don't look Italian. And Sylvia said, John Paul Belmondo's got blonde hair, you know, <laughs> North American, North Italian. Northern, and it was true, absolutely true. Uh, I could have been a cousin of John Paul Belmondo's, except I'm not quite as sexy as he is. <laughs> but anyway, I got into the show, you know, and, uh, and I managed to crack that role. I was very, very lucky. Well, it's, it's sometimes it's about being in the right place at the right time, right? Yeah, it's all about timing, mate. Always, yeah, everything right. in life is about timing. Right. I, I know I've known some wonderful actors, and I've known in my, in my own instance where I've been right for something, but I can't get to meet the people, or yeah. I'm doing something else and can't do it at the time. I was doing a wonderful play in Australia called Don's Party, and uh, uh, Robert Molly came to see it. And then he came to England and asked me to come to England and do Don's party for him in England. I flew to England to do it. And then the, the, the theater that we were going to use wasn't available for 12 months. It was all booked up for other things. So I was stuck in London with nothing to do. And that's when I met the Andersons and I got Space 1999. So then I did Space 1999 and a year later, they decided to do Don's party and I couldn't do it because I was doing Space 1999. You were gallivanting across the galaxy. Yeah, and and then they went to Australia and they decided to make a movie of Space of Don's Party, and I couldn't <laughs> do that either because I was doing Space 1999 still. So you oh. see, these things happen. You, you missed opportunities, you gain opportunities. Sure, I mean, sure. What's it called? Sliding doors. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. speaking of, of doors, what were what was your first thought, first impressions of, of the Moonbase Alpha set when you came on board? Oh man, it was the whole thing was mind-boggling. Can you imagine? Um I was a very young actor in my early twenties. And um you they're making this television series that there hadn't been a science fiction thing since seven years uh, Star Trek was finished. Now they were doing this big thing. I thought they should have made a feature film. I said, well, why don't we start, you know, I said, is this part? And, and the, the, the pilot director was a man called Lee Katzen. He said, don't you worry. He said, the pilot's going to be like a feature movie. He spent a fortune and nearly bankrupt them. In fact, mm -hmm. the series got very shaky in the beginning because they spent so much money on that first show. It took six weeks to make. And, and, and it, I'm glad yeah. it did because I would not have been in the series if it weren't for the fact that I was there all the time, you know, rehearsing to play this small role that I was going to wow. do. So, so Nick, it was, it was six weeks to make the first episode. Oh yeah. Wow. Wow. That's. Well, they'd always budgeted it to have an extra week of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. But, but Lee wow. Katzen took so long to make. Yeah. That. That's, that's like a, that's a, a movie scale. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A mini, wow. a mini movie, but nonetheless, yes, it is. When you consider that now that well-oiled hour-long television takes eight days to shoot, right? Wow, eight-day right. turnaround. Yeah, yeah, or less in some cases. 
but that's a, that's a whole other story. Let's, I said less in some cases, but not, I mean, that's not ideal, obviously. Right. Not, not for the really big shows. You, yeah. you couldn't, couldn't do it. I, sure. Um, and they tried with, in the second series of space 1999 to shoot it in eight days. Um, we got it down to about 10. We were doing one every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, some one of the directors, okay, he'll remain nameless. He wrote a script and t- sold it to Jerry. He said, "I written this. I know I can do it in eight days." He did do it in eight days, and then it spent after they had gone through agonies in the editing room, spent another week trying to fix it. Ouch! Wow! Yeah. So no, Ouch. it had to be. It, you know, a ten day. That's Monday, Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday was mm-hmm. where we could get. And sometimes it could pinch a bit more time. That's when we started using the, the second studio, which was L&M. And all of Alpha, Moonbase Alpha was in the L studio. And, um, and the M studio was where we did a lot of the alien sets. And so you could have other actors over there working at the same time. And in fact, towards the end of the second series, they did exactly that. We shot eight episodes back to back. So it was only in uh, four episodes time two two episodes were made at the same time in different studios i wasn't in those other four um martin and barbara made tiny appearances in all of them so that she would play the lead who had carry most of the weight and other and characters like myself or tony and or Catherine shell would be supporting to make those episodes the final eight mm-hmm. have weight and interest but they really did <sighs> throw away a lot of money and um, the series was on its knees by then. Hmm. Brent Freiberger was not the most, um, not my favorite guy. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Again, earlier we were talking, we were talking previously, I'm, uh, I'm a dyed in the wool Star Trek fan and um, Fred Freiberger is, is notorious in classic Star Trek, circles i always i always joke reasons i always joke about the idea that like the the guy who basically destroyed star trek they brought him in and said you know we want to really revitalize space 1999 let's get that guy (laughs) 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 it's like really you know yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. and six million six million dollar man he killed that too Mm. oh no yeah there we go Mm. Mm. yep There we go. Yeah. I mean, I guess if if you've got a, um, you know, if you're good at something, you'll always find work. I don't know. That's, that's a little unfair. I suppose. It's good at destroying shows. Awesome. Awesome. So, so Nick, I have a question for you because one of the things that, that I've always enjoyed watching your performances, Alan Carter is you piloting an Eagle, right? There is just a really nice sense of, that character knows his craft. What what did you draw on to bring that to those scenes to that role? Was there was there anything that you touched on to say, oh yeah, I've got an uncle who's a pilot or whatever, or did you just sit down and go, I'm pressing five buttons and <laughs> and and I hope they get it on film? What was your what was your approach? Seven, seven buttons. You weren't counting. No, I clearly wasn't. <laughs> uh, man. One of the great things about being an actor is that I stand and stare at people all the time. I get on the tubes. If somebody's really weird, I'm, st- I'm the one that's stopping and looking at him. I've had girlfriends. I've had best friends go, Nick, for Christ's sake, stop looking at him. He's going to pull a gun on us. 
I am fascinated by by odd behavior. And I spend, I think most actors, therefore, are observers of life. Because even in my own tragedies, when something really deeply sad has happened to me, I'm disgusted by, by the knowledge that my head is saying, remember this, remember this tragic moment, because you can use it later, you know, and then I want to kick myself for being like that. But um, I think, I'm sorry to say, but I think all actors are the same. We observe people so that in order we may be able to recreate because how can you decide what goes on inside another person's mind? Uh, I remember when I was asked to do an episode of Crown Court in England and I was going to be playing the, the, um, the part of a, a, of a heart transplant surgeon who takes an old man that's dying in hospital over the weekend when the main heart transplant surgeon is out of town. I decided to give him a heart transplant and I tell everybody he he gave me authority. He told me to do it. His wife said he never would have done that. He loved me too, but because my character kills him, you know. So the, the, the crown court was made in a way where they showed it to an audience mm -hmm. and the audience decides how you do the end of the show. Uh, they vote on how the what the last scene will be. And in this thing, the last scene would be, am I guilty or innocent? Because it's crown court and mm. the audience that are watching it are the jury so so the director said to me of course he's he's, he's really guilty and i said no he's not he said oh nick don't be ridiculous i said excuse me you want me to play this role he's innocent and he said well you're going to be in for a big surprise i said no no you're going to be in for a big surprise and i was right and his uh, uh, my character got off he was innocent now, here's something even more weird about that story, and that is that I had shot that about six weeks before I met Sylvia Anderson. And when I went down to meet Sylvia and Jerry Anderson, one of the problems with, with my be giving a leading role in the show was I was already doing all the rehearsals with them for playing a character that was going to die. Then they decide that they've got to replace Alphonse Catani with an English actor. Um, the, uh, the director, Lee Katzman, says, I want Nick to play it. He brings me in. They go, no, 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 Nick's, you know, he's Australian. And I told you that story about, you know, so it's not um, on the moon. Uh, bloody English aren't on the moon either, I said. <laughs> and, and nearly lost me the thing. So they're trying to walk me out the door. And um, she said, well, Nick, you know, you don't, we, we really got to have a star actor. We've got to have somebody that's very experienced. And as much as I, we like you and I love you, Dad. I don't know that you've had the enough experience. She said, if we could see you in something, I said, what time is it? She said, what do you mean, what time is it? I said, well, what time is it? She said, it's quarter to one. I said, can you turn on channel seven? She said, what, what are you doing? <laughs> said, turn on, turn on. I swear to God, this is a true, may God strike me dead. Crown Court was on television right then, my episode. She turned on the television and there I am. And she goes, Jesus, how did you organize this? <laughs> <laughs> now that might have been how I got the show. I don't know, but they they stayed for he's 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 innocent, not guilty. You know, I right. got the people nice. cheering and everything. Um, you know, I swear nice. to the true story. I was That's there amazing. being interviewed by Jerry and Sylvia for that moment. Turn on Crown Court, and there I was. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a question about could I carry a show? You know, or right. could I? You know, Anyway, 
Mr. Charisma. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. The, with your your performance as Alan Carter is very charismatic. I, you know, I, when I said at the beginning, it, it's a toss-up between Alan Carter and the Eagle for the best character on the show. So what a great I, I'm, I'm I'm very serious about that. I mean, that that across those two series... And as well, you know, there's a massive tonal shift between that first series and the second. Yeah. Your character is consistent across that, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's it's a joy to watch that. And and oh, I think that's a God testament bless. to the work that you that you did. God bless you, buddy. Oh, uh, well, thank you for for that. I mean, really. You well, know, Tim. Tim, just on an aside, um, did did you watch the show first run? No, actually, I didn't. I I lived in a, a small town in Virginia that that the uh, the biggest station we could get was out of Washington D.C. and they didn't carry Space nineteen nine first ninety nine first run. So I was reading about it through Starlog magazine. Oh, sure. I had gotten a couple of uh, novelizations of of Breakaway mm-hmm. and uh, Guardians of Peary and a couple other episodes, and that's that's. That is what I knew of the show. I never watched an episode. I swear, probably for ten to twelve years, you know, after the show had had run, mm-hmm. before I could ever find it. And of course, this is before cable. This is before mm-hmm. VHS and all the rest, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it was it was a it was a long time before I actually saw any of the episodes. Uh, what, so it's uh, funny. What, um, the, the 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 only point I was going to make. Is that as a as a child watching that series, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. like I, I was. Uh, um, Star Trek was in uh, reruns consistently. It was like on daily reruns, actually, and yeah. uh, uh, and then so so I was basically as a small child watching Star Trek in, in reruns and Space nineteen ninety nine first run, and my uh, my friends and I would 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 play out of the playground and recreate these adventures from both shows, right? Um, uh, and I'm. I'm Digressing, I, was, I realized we never crossed over. That would have been interesting. Anyway, we uh, we uh, we it was always a toss up of, of are you going to play Captain Kirk or Alan Carter, it, right? You know, right? Yeah, not yeah. not Commander Koenig. No, 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 not Commander. Right, Koenig. not Commander it was, Koenig. It was Alan Carter. Alan right? Carter. And, yeah. and in the end, we all chose Alan. We Alan was a bigger hero for us than than Captain Kirk because he flew the eagle. Yeah. And he was so cool. We always nice. thought he was so cool. So yeah. it's been so neat for me to hang out with Nick and interact with him and talk with him, you know, and everything. And also, Nick, I was obviously I was uh, I caught uh, uh, Day After Tomorrow when it first came out. And that had a huge impact on me, man. I thought that was so cool. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah. a shame that he couldn't. Uh, oh, I know. But, um, yeah. Jerry had plagiarized. Uh, the sets of Space 1999. Space 1999 was finished. It was all over. Mm-hmm. We weren't going to be redoing it. Mm. I'd been in Australia shooting another film called The Devil's Playground. And I got this call from Jerry Anderson. He said, where are you? I thought you were here in England. I, I'm about to shoot a pilot and I, I need you. Uh, Jerry personally called me. Uh, and um, I was fascinated. And I said, well, I'm, I'm about to finish in two weeks time. And he said, well, we, we want to start shooting in two weeks' time. It's one episode. It's a pilot for a new television series called The Day After Tomorrow, and you'd be the, the, the pilot. Do you, do you want to come and do it? And I said, are you kidding me? Of course I want to come and do it. <laughs> yes, Jerry, thank you. So I yeah. flew straight back, and I arrived back. And the minute I got back, I missed the day I got back, I was taken straight down to Pinewood Studios, 
dressed in the new outfit because I didn't have the long hair that I had in Space 19. My hair was cropped really, really short because I was playing a, um, a, a, a Catholic priest uh, mm. who was in a seminary and uh, they, no vanity. So the hair was like- uh, Here, you know what? I just half an inch have a poster. Nice. On my wall. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> yeah. There yeah, so this is the, the day after tomorrow. I got to move in the right direction. This is the day after tomorrow poster, and there's there's Nick right there. So, yep, yeah. <laughs> oh, there he is. <laughs> yeah, I love I, it. I, I pulled it out. This is normally sitting here, but I, I pulled it out of my office, my office down the and uh, that's got this one on the wall, which is as you might see, yeah. um, that's the first series with Martin and Barbara, and there's Xenia. Mm -hmm. and myself and um Curtis Hancock and uh and uh, Barry Morse uh, I didn't bring the other one but I've also got the second series with um Tony Tony Anholt and uh uh Catherine Shell uh, and another big poster like that is all in my office down below sure I, I used to drive fast rally cars and stuff when I was a teenager crazy guy uh and so when when I was a kid, I grew up and wanted to be an actor in cowboy movies, and that's what I hope would happen to me. And but there weren't any cowboys. Well, that's not true. There are cowboys in Australia, but a different kind. Yeah, you know, they all talk to you like g'day, mate. You know, seen in deep lately. Uh, no, but um, as opposed to talking like this, partner. Yeah, partner. <laughs> like, there, man. So uh, to come over because Alan Carter very much is like a cowboy in a way, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's. Imagination. When you ask me how did I study, what did I draw from to Alan Carter? Mm -hmm. uh, the writers drew from me, Nick Tate, because I'd been a Greenberry in the army. That was another thing. You know, I wanted to become a tough guy in Australia. And I, I was in the surf club and I was into being, you know, rugby and all that stuff. I was crazy. I'd jump off cliffs and crazy shit. Um, <laughs> like, anyway, uh, so that's, that's all of, all the beginnings of Alan Carter. Right. So, so tell me about your, your feelings about the tonal shift between the first series and the second series. It's evident that you have an opinion about it and I'm curious to know what that might be. Well, I was totally appalled. I mean, for a start, uh, when Freiver, Fred Freiberger was brought, brought in, he changed the entire show. He fired, um, everybody from the cast. He had Martin and Barbara and only Martin and Barbara. He didn't bring back Barry Morse. He never wanted to bring him back. They negotiated him for him to come back, but he made it very uncomfortable. I, I shouldn't talk about another actor's history. Barry Morse was a wonderful human being and a great actor. Uh, and he deserved to be in the series. The audiences loved his character. Um, so too, I think as I've already discussed, they liked the character I played and Prentice and Xenia, she was a great favorite, and a lot of the people that we had on the show. But um, Fred came in and he just swept them, because he knew that Sylvia loved everybody. Sylvia had basically cast Space 1999, not Jerry. And um, when Sylvia and Jerry split in a very bitter divorce, sadly, uh, all the people that she loved were gone. And mm -hmm. you'd think that Martin and Barbara would have fought for having some of us back because they can't do a television series with a cast of totally different people or can they? Because in the end they did. Mm -hmm. 
and but they didn't seem to put up any fight about well we've got to have Alan back and we've got to have Barry you know uh, Dr. Professor Bergman Bergman. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, he they didn't fight for it Uh, and so I wasn't coming back everybody told me I'd gone back to Australia to shoot uh, another film I was very lucky between shows I had a lot of work going on and um, my agent rang me and said Nick, they've decided they're going ahead with the second series of Space 1999. I said, you've got to be kidding me. We even did the... the... So I said, well, when, when are they calling me? She said, darling, the reason I'm calling you is because they're not. I've tried to call, talk to them and say, when do you want Nick? And she said, they've done the same thing to Prentice and to Xenia and to Anton and to all the actors, everybody. We're all gone. He, he wants to bring in a new broom. I came back to England anyway because I was furious, and um, uh, I was asked. I knew that they'd started the show. There were all the actors, the new people in the show, were down there rehearsing and doing it, and um, I suddenly got a phone call from my agent, Jerry Anderson, wants to see you. I said, "What for?" And she said, "Nick, I don't know, but I wouldn't ask questions. I'd go down and 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 see what he has to say to you because I." Mm-hmm. I said, okay, fair, fair enough. So, and I went down expecting that he was going to offer me something, or at least if not just an explanation. And he said to me, I, he said, close the door, I closed the door. He said, things are very different here, Nick. And he said, and I said, well, I don't quite know why you brought me here. And he said, well, I'll tell you why I brought you here. I brought you here because you've won. I said, what do you mean I've won? He said, you've won, Nick we have to have you back in the show. I said, you've been rehearsing for two weeks already. You've got all these actors milling. I don't know any of them. How many scripts have you got? He said, we've got seven finished and 11 in the, in the line. I said, how many of them have got Alan Carter in the show? And he said, well, obviously none. I said, well, how, how, what, do you, what do you mean you want? You're starting, this is Friday. You're starting on Monday. Two days time from now, what am I going to do? You're just going to cross out Pilot or Fred or whatever his name is and write in Alan Carter because that's not the way you do it. You know, he said, yeah, oh, no, 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 I know. And he said, look, I want to get this all done with you now because I, I need you to meet the producer because it's all his doing. And um, he, he didn't understand what a popular character you are, but I've tried to make him see that. And so, you know, go and, go and see him. So then he brings Fred in and Fred comes in and he's trying to make you know, that he knows all about me and I love the, love the show and everything. So, and then he said, why don't you come down and uh, spend Sunday with me and the wife and we'll talk about how we can reintegrate Alan Carter into the show. And I said, yeah, with seven scripts already written on me, not in any of them, I would think that it would be a pretty wise thing to do. And um, I said, well, who was the actor that you got that was going to play the astronaut? He said, you don't have to worry about that. If you come in the show, it will be you. So that was weird. And it did. They hadn't even picked somebody. Uh, or maybe they had. I never discovered who he was. But anyway, I, I go to his house and he clearly doesn't seem to have a clue about the show. He's saying really weird things to me. He's saying the audience, Nick, you keep asking me about why these people aren't in the show. He said, the show is going to be different and the audience will never notice. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh. Wow. Wow. 
I swear to God, that's his exact word. Wow. We'll never notice. That explains wow. a lot. That explains so, wow. a lot. And, and so I, how, what did you, how, what was your reaction to that? I said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Freiburger. I don't know who he was. You know, uh, apparently he told me that the show was dead and buried and he'd gone to ITC and said to them, this is too good a show. I can make it work for you. I allow Donald Trump. I can do <laughs> this for you, you know. Leave it to me, I'll do it. And so they've gone, okay, well then, all right, here's $20 million, whatever. I don't know. Uh, and um, so, and he said, now one of the things he said, I want to promote you. He said, I'm going to make you Lieutenant Alan Carter. And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, I'm going to promote you. You're going to be Lieutenant Alan Carter. <laughs> and I said, have you ever seen this show? <laughs> and he said, oh my gosh, well, so I said, I'm Captain, Captain Alan, Alan Carter. To demote me. Uh, I mean, I swear to God, this is true. You, you know, he, he sounds to me like a, like some of these modern uh, studio execs nowadays, you know, who don't read scripts and they have really short attention spans. And, you know, I don't know. Just, wow. Well, I read something somewhere the other day that, uh, oh, I think it's in uh, one of the books that the two guys that have written the, uh, the shows about what's going on with space 1999 he only saw three episodes before he agreed to do the show and maybe it was three that i was hardly in because he certainly knew nothing about alan carter and he said oh, i have to humanize you you know he said all the characters are wooden well my character was not wooden my character was fun and joyful and uh and and or anxious and or aggressive but he ain't wooden's not the word for yeah. alan carter no and it, it just right. insulted me left right and center and insulted everybody else who i loved like prentice and xenia and clifton and barry Moss, saying that they were you know not the kind of quality actors that he wanted to work with that he was going to be bringing in he said meaningful and i'm going to write meaningful scripts uh by the time he wrote script number five uh, I, I had one line in script number five. I walked into his office and I dropped it on his desk and I said, because they offered me the series and I said, no, I'll do it. I'll do it episode by episode. Because the minute you don't write for me, I'm gone. I dropped it on his desk and I said, this is your goodbye script. He said, what are you talking about? I said, uh, well, uh, I, I think the line was, Koenig is, is asking me to do something Alan, uh, will you check the, the, the reactors or whatever it was? And you see this little moon buggy in the distance going across and an astronaut sitting in there. And you just wanted my voice. Okay, Commander. Okay, Commander. That's my line. That's <laughs> meaning, meaning, meaningful script. I said, you American, you speak with forked tongue. You can stick your series up your butt. And I walked out. I swear to God, I walked out. I went home. I grabbed my wife. I saw the front page of the um, London Times in those days. They used to have, the, it's now on the back page, uh, advertisements for holidays. And uh, I booked a holiday to go to Marhofen in Austria. We went down to the airport and I got on a plane and I flew out of, I didn't tell my agent was going. I didn't tell anybody. I just told Fred Feuerberger to stick the series up his ass. And as I was walking out the door, um, Martin Landau suddenly sees me and comes running out and said, what are you doing? What are you doing, Nick? And I said, I'm leaving, Martin. 
and he said, uh, but, but, you, what, you, you, what about the show? I said, you talk to Fred Freiberger about the show, man, but I'm gone because I can't stand that man anymore. I don't know how you can work with him. He's such a liar. And, and Martin said, but, you know, oh, something about, you know, we love you. I, now, I haven't told you this, but Dragon's Domain mm -hmm. was originally written with my character solving all the problems. My character is the one that fights the dragon and my character is the one that vanquishes the dragon. And, and in the end, Martin read the script and said, well, I'd got in the first series when I was doing it, Dragon's Domain was going to be the seventh script. Doesn't come out that way in the way they brought the episodes out. Right. It was the seventh script. Johnny Byrne was still asking me questions about what would an Australian actor do here. And um, uh, so I went down and spent the weekend at Johnny's house in uh, Canterbury, where he was living in his beautiful old mansion. God, it was a mansion, which he was renting for practically nothing. Had a maze and everything and farmyards and had these two huge Irish wolfhounds and a beautiful teenage girlfriend. And he was already <laughs> in his 40s and she was very pregnant. Um, so, uh, but I loved Johnny, he was a great guy. And he says, Nick, look at this. He said, um, it's, it's gonna be called Dragon's Domain. And he said, have a, look at the, have a look at the script. So I was staying with him. I went upstairs and I read it and I was blown away. It was a great episode for me. And I came down and I said, man, he said, well, you know, I think we're, anything, in the Astra, anything in there that you want to change? I said, not a word. I just love it. So exciting. And he said, well, keep Sturm about it because it's coming down in a couple of weeks' time on the set. A couple of weeks' time, it came down on the set. Alan Carter gets knocked on the head on page two, goes into the infirmary, stays there the entire episode, and Martin is the one that goes and discovers the dragon and vanquishes it. And I saw that script and I went into Sylvia's office. And I said, Sylvia, have I offended somebody here? She said, what are you talking about? She said, uh, Nick, close the door. I closed the door. And um, uh, she said, have a, and she paused me this big scotch. And I'm in the middle of, I'm filming. <laughs> she says, drink that. And I said, I, well, I'm working, Sylvia. She said, I think you should drink it. And I said, what are you trying to tell me? She said, you're right about the script. It was written for you, but you think everybody loves you here, don't you? And I said, I'm having a wonderful time. She said, you're not loved by everybody, Nick. Well, who doesn't love me? She said, come on, wake up. I said, well, Jerry hates me? She said, no, no, Jerry doesn't hate you. And then I, I said, I, I think she's talking about Martin. I'm going, you're talking about Martin? He, he's my best friend. I mean, Martin had gone out of his way to embrace me. You know, you, you hold people that you're fearful of close mm -hmm. to your chest if you have the authority to do it. You don't let them out of your sight. And um, he's told them that it was too soon for me to play this role. That could come in the second series or the third series. He didn't want me to have that role now. And uh, they said, well, what are we going to do with him? He said, bump him on the head. But yeah, you've got to have all the other parts. And he said, no, well, we'll bring in an Italian actor and kill him. That's exactly what they did. Now, 
I was saving this for my book, but <laughs> there it is. Yeah, we we seriously need a DVD of Nick doing commentary on every single episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, 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 now I, he's getting modest. <laughs> no, that, that was, that, this was just one incident where it was like the best episode of the series, mm-hmm. Dragon's Domain, and it was a great role, and the, the writers were very excited about writing it for me, and then Martin said, he's not to do that. Character that does that gets mm. killed, and I, and, you know, and so when I was leaving in the second series, and I've gone out the door and saying, Fred Vogue is an asshole, and Martin stood there in front of me and said, Nick, Nick, don't do this, you know, I love you, I love I said, oh, really? You've always loved me, Martin? And he said, what are you talking about? Of course I've always loved you. And I said, Dragon's Domain, Martin. And he stood, he went, oh, Nick, that was, you have to understand, it was too soon for you. It was too soon for you. I said, in whose estimation was it too soon for me, Martin? I was already starring in television series in Australia when I came to America. You know, um, I know it's your show and I've loved you and I've always had a great relationship with you, but you stuck a knife in me that night in my heart. And I've lived with that ever since right through the series, knowing that you took it away from me. Mm. And he said, we'll, we, it's going to be all right. You know, you mustn't walk out now. He went and talked to Freiburger. They went and talked to, I went to, I went to Marhofen. I, I skied <laughs> 10 days in Marhofen. I came back. And it was pandemonium going on. They either wanted to sue me and send me to prison because there were <laughs> scripts written for me. or And, and then I came back down and Freiburger said, I will, you know, and I, I said, you come and say that in front of um, Jerry Anderson, that you're going to write for Alan Carter, you know, because yeah. I'm gone if you don't. Yeah. Just like Marhofen. I don't think I'm even in one minute in that episode. Don't know what it was. Um so I'm, I'm telling you something very negative. It's like drama, I know, uh, but uh, we survived. And uh, I got on well with Martin because I knew who he was and he knew who I was. Um, I think sometimes you have to have a bit of a rift in life, but he did go to Freiburg and said, pull your finger out, man, you've got to let him stay and you've got to write for him. Because he knew that I could handle it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Tim, right. what else do you need to know, buddy? Or is <laughs> everything? No, I want to. So, so here, here's the question I have. In your estimation, what do you think is the biggest missed opportunity with Space 1999? Biggest missed opportunity. Well, they are two totally different animals. The first series and the second series. Right. And the missed opportunity was that they didn't have the courage to continue doing the first series the way it was, real science faction. They brought in somebody like Freddie Freiberger who wanted to have monsters that had sort of purple wigs and just what I, in England we call end of Brighton Pier comics, you know, and pantomime characters, mm-hmm. not based in reality. You know, if you want to have real horror, let's have real horror, you know. Let's not do it like pantomime. Right, um, right. Uh, and also, uh, and I know this sounds like an ego trip, but there were very good young actors in the show. Martin wanted all the moments all the time. 
there's no ensemble in Space 1999. It's mm -hmm. Martin being the star, doing all the moments. And then if somebody starts getting slightly better than somebody else or more opportunity than somebody else, they bring in somebody else to, so that we look over here now, you know. Yeah. Uh, and um, this is not saying anything negative about Tony Anholt because when he was brought in, he was brought in as the new sexy young man which Martin had to put up with because he didn't want any sexy young men anywhere near him. Martin was the one that had refused the Italian actor. He took one look at this guy that was coming to play Alphonse Catani, all six foot two of him, and said, he's not coming on this show. And he just told the Andersons right there and then they had to get somebody else. So, you know, to that extent, he did me a favor because I wound up getting the character. Mm -hmm. But it's all about missed opportunities when you've got you asked me what were the missed opportunities because they allowed Martin all the moments in the show. Uh, he's a wonderful actor, even in spite of the fact that, you know, he retarded so many of us with possible opportunities. You've got to, you know, it's like playing a game of tennis. You know, it's only great when there are two fabulous tennis players whacking balls over the net and the other one whacking it back even harder. It's, yeah. it's what it's got to be about. If somebody's just winning all the points and crushing everybody around them, it's not interesting. Yeah. And this is how you, that's why Mission Impossible was so great because it was, there were great characters in it. Mm -hmm. um, and any show that is hugely successful has always got a great ensemble cast. Mm -hmm. Martin didn't want that. And neither did Barbara, quite frankly. They mm -hmm. wanted to be Mr. and Mrs. Stars of the show. Uh, and they were very much so. And if the show had any failing at all, it was because it was just about those two characters always. How did it reflect on them? What mm -hmm. do we know about Xenia's character or Prentice's character? Or for that matter, what do we even know about my character? None of them. We weren't given lives. Yeah. We were given moments, but not lives. And it's a big mistake when you're doing a television series. You've got to give all the characters opportunities and so that we care for them. And yeah. we bleed when they bleed and we cry when they cry and we laugh when they laugh, you know? And yeah. You can't do that with two people that are out of, out of 300 people that are supposed to be on this moon base alpha and, and then get rid of most of them and only have two of them come back and have the producers say the audiences won't know. <laughs> the difference, right, right. I know that's, that, that speaks volumes right there, you know? And to your point, I mean, when I, when I think about I don't know that I have favorite episodes so much as I do have favorite moments. And to your point, Nick, those moments are those like there's um, in full circle. And I don't know if you're one of the, the actors on a show. It's like, I don't remember the titles. I just did the thing. Or if you're someone who, you know, um, I, I, I don't remember them either. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Anyways, it's, it's, it's an episode. Yeah. It's an episode where the, where alpha comes across this planet and some of the um, survey people go into a mist and they devolve back into cavemen. But there's this great little subplot in there between Alan Carter and Sandra and Paul where you get to see there's a relationship between those three. And, and to your point, it's like, that's a lot of what makes that episode watchable. And it's a shame that we didn't get more of that. Well, we, we formed nice relationships off camera, uh, Prentice Hancock and Xenia Merton and I became great mates. We didn't socialize much. 
-hmm. but we spent so much time together. It's like being a husband and wife. When I I was asked to come, now I've never had this happen on a television series before. I had to come to work at six o'clock every morning, regardless of whether I had one line or no lines. I was there on call night and day. Now, Mm -hmm. being a young actor that loved being in the show, wanting to have pick up every opportunity I could, uh, I was prepared to do it. And I so I never complained. And they were the same. We were always there all the time. And yet uh, you don't see that much on screen sometimes because um, we weren't called upon. And the directors that were very good at calling upon us, Ray Austin was very good like that. He just didn't want us sitting around. And even if we were, he would create reaction shots if we didn't have lines, seeing why this was happening and seeing the, 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 the frisson of moments between us. You know, uh, he was very quick at picking those moments up and taking the time to say, I want them in the show. It's not in the script. He wanted, mm-hmm. he said, why isn't it in the script? You know, I want to see how it affects them. You know, when things happen, I want to get, I want cuts of round, uh, all the different faces, even mm-hmm. some of the extras who stayed with us for over a year um, and never spoke a line. I mean, there were some of the girls and guys on the show were promised by certain directors and producers that they were going to have scenes next episode and so on. I don't know to what extent there was whatever the jiggery that was going on there with these people, but they all expected that things were going to happen for them. Mm-hmm. And so they hope, hoped continually that it would. There was a girl in the show um, who finished up uh, running, uh, being lead in her own television series. Uh, Bullen was her name, um, mm-hmm. Sarah Bullen. And she was an extra in our show. I think she would only ever say things like, yes, sir, or no, or, or over there, one or two lines, ever. She was right. never any part of the driven plot. Right. Clearly a wonderful actress mm-hmm. uh, and a very good-looking girl. And um, she went on to star in her own television series in England for a couple of years. Uh, and you, so you look at Space 1999 and go, wait a minute, she's an extra in this show? <laughs> You know, they talk about missed opportunities. Yeah, right. There were people on our show that could have carried episodes and should have been allowed to be part of those that, those abilities. Sure. Uh, uh, but when you have people who are driven for other purposes to want to have it all, uh, it's very hard to get around them. I had no concept that Martin was like that in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until... Sylvia told me to shut the door and have a scotch and sit down and shut up and listen to it. Mm-hmm. You think you're loved by everybody in this show, don't you? And I went, yeah. She said, <laughs> you're not. I yeah. said, what are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. I couldn't believe that she was telling. And she said, if you ever say any of this, Nick, I will deny it totally and you'll be fired instantly. I'm telling you for your own good. Right. Because right. You, know, you are very good and we love you, but you're not loved by everybody. Yeah, and that yeah. he wouldn't tell me who the person was. It was bloody clear to me who the per- that person was. Sure, sure. So, so uh, what? Let, I have. I have somewhere I'm going to interrupt because I have a, a, another question for Nick. Mm-hmm. What is it about Space 1999 that allows this this enjoyment of fans 
30, 40, 50 years on at this point. What what do you think for all the all the difficulties that we've talked that you've talked about, all those those experiences, both good and bad, what is it about that that show do you think has carried it across decades? I, I mean, it doesn't rival Star Trek, but but there's plenty of other two-year science fiction shows that have just dropped by the wayside and have been forgotten. And yet Space 1999 still seems to carry um, there, there's something in fans that they continually keep the show at least in an awareness and talking to you <laughs> as it were. So what do you think it is? What is it about the show that, that keeps people engaged? Well, say talking to me, um, this is fairly rare what we're doing here. Um, mm-hmm. It's taken 50 years to, uh, for me to even confess that there was a problem. I, I wasn't going to tell people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I certainly never did it at the time. The only person I told was Martin when I told him that I knew exactly what he'd done uh, with Dragon's Domain. And, um, and he, he, in his own way, tried to make it up to me because... I know that Martin genuinely liked me and I genuinely liked him, but he was like a dog that had a bone. It didn't matter how much he liked the other dog. This dog was not going to have that bone. And that was Martin. He was a a, a dog with a bone. So um, we, uh, we other actors got on very well together and spent time in each other's company. Uh, We'd go to lunch together and so forth at the commissary there uh, and spent many a long hour off in the wings discussing our lives and our, our dreams and our plots for other things and storylines that we might uh, have in, in stock for us. Why people love the show so much is, I think, because they could see that we, we were human. We did have an empathy, which Fred Freiberger seemed to miss entirely when he wanted to change the show around. He said, I'm going to make everybody more humane. I'm going to give you meaningful lines. And I'm going... Uh, well, this is wonderful to hear because at this point in time, I, I only had to could only believe him. I didn't know who he was or, or or where he was going with this. And in this first meeting that I had with him, it was like, well, you can go fuck yourself, <laughs> or uh, it's like, well, yeah, I'm prepared to listen. You know, I said, but I'm not going to sign yeah. a contract. Uh, I I. Uh, why people love things. I can give you a demonstration. I can't tell you why people remain main fans for so long. I think that's a staggering quality where people have loved, like Todd, for example, who was with us earlier on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're still listening, Todd. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're welcome to come back on any time. He, um, you know, he loves the show with a, and a great knowledge of the show. The girls that ran my fan club, the Eileen Skidmore and Phyllis Proctor, they came to me, uh, well, actually, another girl originally came to me at the show and said she wanted to run a fan club for me. And I was a bit scared because I knew that Martin had a bit of a jealous problem about the fact that my character was popular. And so I said, well, we have to be careful around that. Instead of calling it the Alan Tate fan club or the Nick Tate fan club, could we call it Space 1999 fan club? And then you can still rake me in any way. And uh, because I was aware of the fact that there was a problem there and Mm -hmm. uh, they did. uh, But they I would say they knew more about my life than I know about my life. And they (laughs) knew more about my life, certainly than my wife, who just walked out there. Forty eight years we've been married. Um, Congratulations. I met her during the break of the two series. Mm. 
and I married her after the second series. And um, yeah, 48 years. Um, amazing. Anyway, uh, these people, they, they've seen the episodes 10, 10, 12, 15, 16 times each. I've only ever seen every episode. And I haven't even seen every episode. I've only seen most of the episodes maybe twice uh, in my life. And if I go to conventions, there's always a room somewhere where they're playing and I might go in and be fascinated. I'll stand there for 10 minutes watching because it's bringing back, man, it's 50 years ago, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most people don't live that long, you know, uh, and I'm 81, you know, and I didn't think I would ever get anywhere near that. Uh, my parents died in their 60s, mm. but man came in, I... And I don't go to many conventions either. I mean, if you consider that there's at least two or three conventions for Space 1999 happening somewhere in the world every year, there really mm -hmm. is. That mm -hmm. may be just in America and England, but Germany, Italy, France, Japan, I get fan mail and did get fan mail from all over the world. And they dub my character in different voices. So, so funny to hear myself speaking Japanese. Uh, <laughs> But when I was in Hong Kong, I don't know what language that was, but it was some Asian language they were doing. And right. I was fascinated that Cosmos was on television over there. Um, but um, I was, I did, again, Todd Morton, my friend who now has taken over my fan club um, b because both Ireland and Phyllis had died, sadly. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had ripe old age on their side. Uh, but... Um, um, uh, the, the, uh, there were a lot of, Todd asked me to go to, uh, a, a, a fan convention in Canada, in Calvary. And I went to that and I think maybe there were a couple of hundred a day. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so over the course of the three days I was there, six or seven hundred people came to see us and I signed a lot of autographs and stuff and people asked me questions and so I, I give a talk somewhere along the way. And, and you have people coming over and looking and saying, can I, can I tell you what Alan Carter meant to me? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a policeman all my life now because of the upright qualities that I saw in Alan or or I've been an army captain. All these people of, you know, airline pilots and people of authority, people that have wanted to achieve something that uh, was school teachers, supporting other people and helping people and being fine, upstanding characters in life. I'm glad they thought Alan Carter was that. I don't know that I am, but I'm pretty good at pretending I am. <laughs> <laughs> So but with, go on. So I was like, so with the the fan conventions and the fan interactions, has it has it surprised you or just made you just happy that your character and the show have lasted all these years and it's still making an impact on people? With the the revival of the show, the show's on Tubi now. People are watching it in reruns on like in higher def and streaming, and I it's still making an impact. It's just, I am stunned. I'm staggered. I can hardly believe it. 
but you know, I meet people and in fact, yesterday uh, I went to get something for my kitchen stainless steel at a factory and the woman asked me to come in the office. I thought she was working with the boss. And I said, uh, after I talked to her for a while, she was very friendly to me. And, and I said, are you the boss? And she, are you the secretary or the boss? She said, it's my company. I said, you run this big company, million dollar company, stainless steel machines and stuff, huge presses and people rush, rushing around all over the place. And she said, well, you know, you, you've been pretty successful yourself. I said, have I? She said, yeah, you know, you're an actor, right? I, I recognize you. And I looked at this woman and I thought, really? I mean, I don't get, that doesn't happen every day now. You know, it used to years ago, but mm -hmm. now at my age that people would still recognize me. I do have people looking at me in a weird way, but I always <laughs> think maybe somebody broke wind somewhere and that's why they're looking at me. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's hard to conceive that people would care for so long or even remember for so long because one of the other conventions I went to and I'm not talking about died in the wall space 1999 fans who mm -hmm. clearly have a love of the show and of mm -hmm. all the characters in it. But I went to this convention in Louisville, another one that taught, oh, and that was a huge one for, for space, uh, for people, uh, model makers. Mm -hmm. And uh, people were coming in and again, you know, arms around and can I cover you? Can I, can I hug you? Can I tell you? And, and, and people say, I'm sorry to be so self-indulgent. And I say, no, hang on a minute. This is a two-way street. As far as I'm concerned, I'm old and decrepit. And that character, Alan Carter, was somebody that lived 50 years ago. Uh, and yet you still love him? Yes, yes, I do. And, and, and they, can, I, can I please? And they want to cry in my arms. It's, and I say, this is, and they say, uh, I'm feeling very self-indulgent. I said, it's okay, buddy. And I'm talking about a man here, not a woman. Yeah, right. I say, um, this is a two-way street. You're giving me a whole new lease of life to think that you cared that much about something that I was lucky enough to be asked to do. Uh, I'm a very lucky actor, a very lucky person. My kids who take, have taken no notice of my career because that was all over. I mean, my kids are in their 30s and 40s. Sure. I'd done it 10 years before they were born. So they know nothing about Space 1999. They've never watched any of it. My daughter was with a bunch of girls the other day. Well, this is years ago, actually. She was in a teenager. She was running through the room and some friends had come over and said they wanted to watch the Blu-ray discs of Space 1999 with me. They were neighbors and they, they were sitting there, oh, this is great, you know. My daughter came into the room and she was giggling crazily with somebody. And one of them said, who's that? And she said, that's my dad. <laughs> in, in an incredulous voice. <laughs> so I, I, and after about, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes, I turned around and she's like this. <laughs> and I said, Jesse, what are you doing? She said, daddy, daddy. She came over and she sat on my lap and she hugged me. She said, I had no idea. So uh -huh. I invited her to a convention about, which happened to be coming up about six months later. And it was here in LA. It might've been the year 1999, actually, when we mm. did the convention here. She came and she was gobsmacked. All these people were coming and loving me, loving me, loving, and loving all the other characters. 
And she was at her first convention and seeing all the people lining up, hundreds of people to, to sign autographs and things. That's just my daughter. And my son really has never really cared about any of it. Uh, he, he's, he's his own man, but he'd be, he was a very good actor too, but he decided to go the corporate way. Um, he never really tells me about it. Um, but uh, in Louisville, all these fans were coming up and there's a man came in and he looked just like everybody else, except he was better dressed. A lot of the fans were just kind of slouching around. This guy was clearly on a business mission. And I thought, I wonder what he's doing and why he's here. And he said, I, I've never been to a science fiction convention in my life. I'm not a fan of anything. And he said, but I saw all the signs outside. He said, I was 15 years of age when I watched Space 1999. And it changed my life. He said, can I hug you? Now, coming from a fan that's done that a hundred times. Yeah. yeah, I understand. But from this yeah. man who was caught totally unawares, he had nothing whatsoever to do with any science fiction shows. He's never gone to a fan convention of any kind in his life. He was in in Louisville on a business mission. And in the hotel he was staying in, he saw this area where all these fans were gathering and it said Space 1999. He went, oh my God, what's that? You know, and he came down and then they said, well, Nick Date's in there, Alan Carter. And he came in and, uh, well, that's the story. You know, I mean, I was gobsmacked by this guy because he cried. Mm -hmm. I cried. <laughs> Yeah, I, you say, do I know why or how these mm -hmm. people are so loyal or have memories like that? No, I don't. I don't know why or how. But then you can never tell why somebody loves somebody else. You look at somebody and think, he's not lovable, but his wife adores him or his boyfriend adores him. You know, I mean, somebody, yeah. people love people for their own reasons. And I don't know what it is. Although I should know a little bit more because as an actor, it's what I constantly study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember, I think I, don't, I was telling the story to somebody else about being told by a director that my character was absolutely hateful. And, and of course, he's guilty. And I said, no, he's not. And he said, oh, Nick, come on, he's as guilty as shit. And I said, no, he's not, man. And you're the director. I'm the actor. I'm playing this role. He's innocent. Mm -hmm. and he goes, OK, suit yourself, you know, and it's the only way you can go, you know. Yeah. yeah. You've got to find the truth. And you have to believe the truth for that character. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't know what an arsehole he is. He thinks he's an innocent human being. He's the violent <laughs> creature on the planet. He should burn in hell. Sorry, I hope you don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're. it's all good. It's all you're good. good. You're fine. Yeah, you're absolutely fine. Uh, I, yeah. I, do have, I do have one more question. What, what are you helping Jeffrey uncover or explore for the documentary is that question directed at me yes it's not directed at me yeah well um <laughs> let's put it this way any any discussions that jeffrey and i have about what it is that he wants to create in the show has to has to happen between us uh i it'd be like saying you know oh the butler did it i can't tell you what he wants me to do okay okay 
we still just that's have to intriguing. Save, save that question for Jeffrey directly. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're talking to Jeffrey later. And yeah, uh, Kevin J. Anderson. So I can tell you that it's an evolving process all along the line. I mean, probably some things I said today, he's going, oh, all right, I can use that. You know, he hasn't thought of it, or maybe he has. Uh, I don't care. I'm just rolling with the punches. I'm happy to be above ground. I play golf and people say, oh, you know, do you like golf? I say, hey, you know, I'm above the grass. That's all that counts for me. Right. <laughs> Not under right. the grass. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm staying fit playing golf, you know. There Good. you go. Yeah. It's, it's, what is it? A, a long walk interrupted. Uh, there's no, it's a, a long, there. it's, uh, long walk ruined, I think is what okay. Mark Twain said. Yeah. I'm not a golf, yeah. golf person. I, yeah. I just, I just watch the, the golf bloopers <laughs> on the, <laughs> on the night, on the nightly sports, sports casts. Yeah. But, uh, it, it, you know, it is an extraordinary sport that I don't think has any any parallel because you have to be both a very very flexible and physical to knock a ball over 300 yards. You have to be very strong and have perfect timing, and then to be able to putt a ball across a, a green that's got swades going this way and different bent grass and with such delicacy, it is both delicate and and physical all at the same time. And somebody like Tiger Woods with an African strong father and an Asian delicate mother is the perfect mix for a golfer. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, Asian ladies can walk on tight ropes with balancing two umbrellas spinning. Tiger Woods can do that. You remember that commercial where he bounces the ball on the end of a chipper and he goes around bouncing the ball behind him like that. And then, then he brings it back and then he, then he knocks it up in the air and then he hits it 200 yards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody goes, that's bullshit. I mean, that's how many takes did they do to do that? You know, and in the middle of a tournament or at the end of a tournament, when he was being interviewed by somebody, they said that thing where you the commercial where you're knocking the ball around and you know, that's all trick photography, isn't it? And he said, no. And they said, can you do it now? And he goes, yeah. And he did it right there. The guy put him on the spot. He goes, bang, 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 bam. You know, and you go, nice. oh, God. Yeah, these people that have those kind of abilities, they are superhuman. And that's what I love about golf. There's, tennis has superhuman moments too, but I I love golf. Very nice. Yes. My sports are baseball and soccer, but... Oh, I love soccer. Yeah, yeah, soccer's great. Okay, got one question. Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi? Who's oh, your Messi. Ah <laughs> yes, totally different animals. Messi is 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 got the most extraordinary ability to make it look like he's moving slowly when he's not. He will weave between some of the greatest soccer players on the planet, and fo outfox them all. And it looks like the ball is attached by magical invisible strings to his feet, and then finally deliver a uh, an unrescuable ball into the back of the net. He is a, a, a giant of a player. And the other guy is, is is flash and dash. Ronaldo is a wonderful, it's a pity. Well, it's not really a pity they're on the planet at the same time because there's room for, for great genius everywhere. Um, but they're, they're totally different animals and they play the game quite differently. Um, and um, 
I love them both. I, I'm, I'm very pleased that they're around at the same time. But I told a story very early on today in another interview. I don't know if you were listening. Uh, when um, I first went to England in 1965, I was a rugby player. I'd, I'd, I'd been in the surf club at home. I wanted to become a really physical guy. So I did all these things that challenged me greatly. My father left home after brutalizing my life and my mother's life. And all mm -hmm. I wanted to do was grow up and be able to beat up my old man. So I, 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 you know, I joined a wrestling club, I went to this rugby, I did all these things to turn myself into an animal. And uh, I get to England and uh, all I want to do is play rugby in England. But I'm an actor, so I'm getting jobs, getting acting jobs. And um, some guys I met that were working on the side of my house uh, on scaffolding were pointing the building and I climbed up the scaffolding and said, hey, you can't do that. Oh, you did it. Oh, well, you shouldn't be up there, mate. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> no, and I said, oh, no problem. So I got talking to these guys, became very, very friendly with them. I said, we're going to footy on Sunday. You want to come with us? I said, well, what's on? They said, oh, it's the World Cup. England's playing Portugal. And I said, oh, really? Yeah, and uh, Alfie can't come. Uh, his ticket's a tenner. Have you got a tenner? You can come with us. So I said, yeah, Wembley Stadium. You'd love to. I thought I was going to a game of rugby. I swear to God. I go oh. to this. I, I get to Wembley Stadium. It is Portugal playing England in the World Cup the semi-final of the World Cup in 1966 in London. And I was standing behind the net and I watched England beat Portugal, who had Eusebio, who was the same kind of player as Ronaldo and Messi. He was an outstanding single star player on the planet at that particular time. And I saw England van vanquish him because he really was the only player on the team that had that kind of skill. England had a fantastic, again, you know, um, combined team of, of sharing stardom. Um, and uh, it, was, it was one of the greatest games of soccer ever played on television. I ever played in the world anywhere. And I'd only ever seen soccer on television in Australia when I thought it was a game for pufters. You know? <laughs> so, so then I come to uh, England and I get to go to this fantastic game. I was, I was initiated with, like instantly. I thought it was the most exciting sporting event I'd ever been to in my life. And the audience was screaming with such vocality uh, and vociferous qualities that my body was vibrating with the cheering and thrill of my life. That's amazing. World Cup. That's amazing. It's like, hey, we're just going to run down to a World Cup game. Want to join us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. And I stood behind uh, the goalposts. Wow. On the hill behind the goalposts, watching the balls come in. England scored five times. Wow. Hmm. Um, and wow. and, and uh, Hurst, a man called David Hurst, was on the bench. He's brought off the bench in extra time and he scored a hat-trick, three goals. Became an instant hero in England. Unreal. Uh, anyway, that was in the World Cup, both between Germany, uh, England and Portugal and then England and Germany. I might be getting the two games, uh, two, two, two Saturdays mixed up. I think Hurst scored the final goal in the Germany game. Um, anyway, that's another story. 
<laughs> oh, you are an awesome, awesome storyteller, and we could sit here all night. Yeah. But you have a dinner date to get to, and I do. Uh, well, it's my son and his wife. Uh, we all went to France for their wedding uh, in July, and uh, we all spent a great time in France. He then went off touring around France with her for a honeymoon. Then he went to Egypt for a week. Then he flew to Australia for a week. He's a bit of a flash, <laughs> bit of a flash kid, my boy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Nick, we are so so thrilled to have just literally sat by the fireside and listened to your stories yeah. about space 1999 and we... I should write a book, shouldn't I? Yes, yes please. you absolutely should. Absolutely. Well, you, you see, I, I don't think I'm going to be any good. I've tried to do it. I sat down and I wrote 48 pages once of my biography uh, and everybody said it was great, but um, I've never been able to sit down and go any further because I discovered that when you want to tell a story about your life, you have to start somewhere. And so trying to start somewhere, I was born in 1942 in the middle of the war when Japan, on the very day that Japan sent um, uh, midget submarines into Sydney Harbour and sunk three ships in the middle of Sydney Harbour with midget submarines. Wow. We lived, we lived right on the park in front of the, the harbour. And my mother saw the spouts of water going up and hearing the explosions. And she said, I'm a shell-shocked baby because she was pregnant with me and I was born born the next day. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, um, but yeah. So, we uh, we will have to... Where do you start have, the book? Where, yeah, know. where do you start the know. book? Right. We'll have to come up with an idea to, to get you to, to, to put these stories down to share with everyone. But again, we are so thankful and happy and privileged to have... Well, I, I, I thank you so much for that. But I think the only way I can write a book is actually to be questioned by people who ask me relevant questions. And I didn't understand that. What did you mean by that? Because I can go ahead and write. And you, as you can see, I digress constantly. People are kind of like, God, what's he talking about now? You know? <laughs> so I need somebody to steer me through and ask questions. And I could perhaps do it that way. Yeah. Cool. Well, we are, again, uh, honored to have Nick Tate here with us to, to regale us with his memories of Space 1999 and World Cup soccer. And <laughs> we will be back with more Slices Sci-Fi right after this. Escape Pod, the free science fiction podcast brought to you by Escape Artists. I rippled a welcoming cadence of light beneath my skin, and then, seeing the newcomer was human, made my best approximation of a smile. Welcome to Helixer Transgalactic Lounge. Each week, one story told well. She should have never come back to this God's forsaken junk heap of a space station. But she couldn't help but miss it when she was away for too long. From the most astonishing and visionary storytellers of the genre. But because time is a trick of the mind, it can be hacked. And we have gotten good at it. We had to. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on the web at escapepod.org. 
and on Patreon under EA Podcasts. Hi, I'm Aaron Ashmore from Sci-Fi's Killjoys, and you're listening to Slice of Sci-Fi. <laughs> and once again, the places you can go to find out more are eagledocumentary.com. Follow the links to their socials to keep track of there. Uh, you can also find out more about Jeffrey and his project over at his website or his production house website, futuredude.com. This documentary looks like it's going to be amazing. The Some of the footage they've already shot is intriguing. The fact, as we mentioned in the interview with Jeffrey and Kevin J. Anderson, they've already done 3D uh, rescales, modelings of the interior of the Eagle. And it's just going to be a whole lot of fun. And I stand by my statement, Nick Tate needs to write uh, several memoirs. Several. <laughs> uh, I, I bet his, his, uh, his stories and memories just about Space 1999 could, could fill two volumes. And then the rest of his career, another two. Easily, easily. And how about you? What are your memories of Space 1999? Of the, the Eagle, the astronauts, the, the inhabitants of Moon Base Alpha? Let me know. Call in. The number is 602-635-6976 or shoot me an email, summer at sliceofsci-fi.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Blue Sky or at Slice of Sci-Fi on Twitter and at SliceofSciFi.com on Blue Sky. You can also come by the website SliceofSciFi.com and leave a comment in the discussion section for these episodes. You can listen to Slice of Sci-Fi on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Player FM, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple or following on Podchaser, please consider leaving us a review or a rating. Let folks know you are enjoying the show and maybe they should check it out for themselves. Just a reminder to... Keep an eye out on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Slice of Sci-Fi. Uh, some of our older uh, defunct podcasts are going to start showing up over there as YouTube podcasts very soon, I hope. <laughs> the, the workload in converting those to be YouTube friendly was a lot larger than I anticipated, but we're, we're cranking through. We're cranking through. You'll see them there eventually. I'd like to thank everyone who is helping to support 
everything in the Slice of Sci-Fi universe, including Slice of Sci-Fi, Babylon Podcast, Writers After Dark, and a few other sites that uh, are floating around out there, and a couple of more that will be starting up again. Your pledges through Patreon, your donations through PayPal really do help keep things uh, running around here. You guys are help keeping all this stuff online. So for that, my thanks and gratitude go out to you all. Again, thank you. The place to go, if you'd like to add your support, is patreon.com slash slice of sci-fi, where you can pick a tier, any tier, and be eligible for perks. Every month I pick a name out of the hat, and that person gets to choose from a book, a DVD, a Blu-ray, or a 4K from the review materials I collect here. And uh, I I really don't have the space to keep it all. So that's why uh, supporters and fans and listeners of the show get first dibs at some, some really cool stuff. If you'd like to add your support but not commit to a monthly pledge, the link you can use is paypal.me slash sci-fi summer. You can also help support things by browsing and shopping our curated shop over at sliceofsci-fi.net. The TV shows, movies, and uh, reference books over there are... Uh, select items that the folks around here are fans of, supporters of, and uh, we thought you might like some of these yourself. Some classics, some obscure recent titles, some brand new titles. Just stuff that uh, we thought was interesting that we thought our fans and listeners might also enjoy. And again, all the links over there are affiliate links, so anything purchased through sliceofsci-fi.net helps a little bit here. Uh, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more Slice of Sci-Fi next time. Take care. Mm-hmm.